So welcome to the Engineering Room, a monthly series of long-form conversations with influential people from the software world. The Engineering Room series is sponsored by Equal Experts, and I'd like to thank them for their ongoing support. So if you'd like some help building some great software or are interested in finding a great place to work, do check out their links in the description below. I first came across the work of today's guest when he published what I think is the best book on software design ever written, at least the best that I've ever read. His is the design book that I wish I had written, though he did a better job than I would have done. It resonated very strongly with me when I first read it, providing language that helped me to better express how I thought about software design and introducing me to ideas that I hadn't thought of. I put the book Domain-Driven Design at the top of my recommending reading list for software developers when I made a video on that recently. Later, our paths crossed often enough on the conference circuit that we became friends. As well as writing my favorite design book, my guest is also an internationally renowned and thoughtful expert on software development in general, always worth listening to. He's also a great conference speaker, and as we English would say, an all-round nice chap. So he sent me his reaction to a recent video of mine on the use of AI co-pilots in coding, and I couldn't pass up the chance to invite him here to join me in conversation. Please welcome my friend and guest today, Eric Evans. Hi, Eric. Hi, Dave. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to attend. <laughs> so I, I, I definitely want to get to talking about your, your interest in AI, because I, I think that's something that, that we're all interested in these days. But I, I also couldn't pass up the chance of us talking about domain-driven design. My, my, my impression is that there are some people that approach what we do from different angles. And, and I, think, I think of myself primarily as a designer rather than a coder. Obviously, I'm co I don't make a big distinction, if I'm honest, but I think that primarily that what we're doing is about design, is my view. Could you give us your elevator pitch for domain-driven design and, and, and why you think it matters and what's important? Right. Uh, I agree that design is much more at the heart of what we do than programming. The code itself... I do think that those skills are important skills, and I've talked about why I think that. Uh, but if I were to try to distill domain-driven design, as I have tried to do many times, uh, and I think that it is not a thing that distills into like you know a few bullet points very well, but one of the kind of unusual aspects of it is the focus on language. So where there are many design approaches where we talk about abstraction and you know finding concepts that represent the domain in useful ways and useful interactions, and all of that is very important in domain-driven design. But I think a kind of unusual aspect of it is the emphasis on finding the right words for those concepts, finding the right language to describe the interactions that happen in the events and so forth, so that eventually you have a kind of language that very concisely expresses the domain problem as you understand it and the way you intend to solve it. And this would run through 
all the way from the way you talked about this with the business people, the domain experts, through the design and into the code, which is one of the reasons that the coding level skills matter so much. The ability to actually express something like that takes a fairly good level of programming skill. It also takes a language that is able to have those kinds of expressions, uh, yeah. which most modern ones do. And I think that that, as we call it, the ubiquitous language that cuts through those different levels, that's probably the most prominent feature. And, yeah. and and that that's that that resonates strongly with me. So 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 one one of the techniques that I recommend to people uh, uh, as, as as part of the stuff that I do is using acceptance tests to drive a development process. So so we come up with examples of what we'd like our software to achieve, and we express those in the ubiquitous language of the system. And one of the techniques that I, I like a lot is to actively try and create an executable version of that ubiquitous language that allows me to easily script these scenarios that that tell me what my system's meant to do, and then I'll develop to those things. And and that link uh, in in what you're talking about between the language and the way in which that language helps us to think about the problem, I think is deeply important to be able to better understand the the problems that we're going to solve and better position us to solve them. Yes, I mean, the thing you mentioned about the test, so one thing that was clear to me even at the time is that the, the tests that we write are an important uh, artifact that needs to be in that ubiquitous language as well. So yeah. if the tests are written in one language and the underlying code is written in another, you might argue, well, you still know if the answer is right, except you don't really, because you don't know if the question is the same. When you write a test, you could say, this test is a statement of a question and the expected answer. Well, if you're not using the same language as the underlying system, how do you know that you've understood that question? I mean, of course you can, of course you can, and people do it all the time. But um, that is another thing, hopefully, that people realize is that I'm sure neither of us is talking about getting that language right and then writing our tests and then writing the, the uh, system. We're talking about this as all iteratively evolving in parallel. The tests would be written before the code, but both of them would be crude um, first passes at this at the uh, test suite and the solution and the ubiquitous language and then yet the insight you gain leads you to refine all of those things again and again until you have something that really that's one of the ways you know that your ubiquitous language isn't quite right if you are having a hard time expressing something either at the test level like it's hard to express the problem statement effectively when you're writing your tests you say maybe something's wrong with the language that we're using or if your solution is hard to express which is the you know the code that makes the test pass uh, these are all for me 
central clues that the language needs refinement. And uh, this constant return to the language, I think, is one of the more distinctive aspects of domain design. Yes, yes, and and and, and uh, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but 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 my 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 impression is that one of the reason why that's so important and why it works is it kind of helps us and also forces us to separate what it is that we want to achieve with our software from how we're going to achieve it and we use the what it is that we want to achieve to shape our designs that that that, that then makes it more easy for us to achieve it i think there is a separation there and that separation is the you know very at the heart of the test driven and continuous delivery yeah. kind of stuff um it to me i think that the the emphasis in domain-driven design was more on the things that unify those, which is that there's a language and that language, like our, you know, we're speaking English right now, English can express all sorts of things. It can describe, among other things, it can describe problems and it can describe potential solutions to problems. The ubiquitous language um, that you develop on a project is a much more constrained kind of language and yet it still needs to be broad enough to describe those two kinds of things the sometimes the sort of manifestation of that language in an artifact will be quite different like you write a document that tries to describe some of it you're just sort of describing it in english and structured english you go in and write tests in a some kind of test framework that code will look quite different than the code that you're using to build the solution. And it'll be focused on a different subset of the language. But it's, I would view it as still the same language because part of, you know, that uh, aspects of that language enable you to state a problem. Other aspects allow you to express a solution. And they still need to be the same language or else there's ambiguity in there. Yeah. So, 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 so how, uh, how, how, how would, how would you, how do you see, um, what is it about DDD that, that helps us to do a better job then in, 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 in doing this? So, so I, I think you're talking about the, um, the, the, the certainly your book talked about the importance which profound importance of minimizing impedance mismatches between different groups of people thinking about the problem from different angles so that when the business are talking about the problem they're talking in the same way that when the technologists are talking about the problem and so on um but but i but i think that what we're talking about is going a little bit further than that in terms of this use of language right we well, we've been talking about uh, sort of the part of it that we do. Yes, I would say that. Yes, so the first thing that, and this is one that people, I think, a lot of people understand, is that it's important to use the same language when we are working on our design that we use when interacting with our domain experts, because otherwise. 
you get these misunderstandings. The, the word, they describe the problem in a certain way, and then we describe it in another way. And we think that those are equivalent, but they may not be. So this is, was a common and even, um, it was even advocated when I was starting um, that the analysis work would be, would be a truly distinct model from the uh, design model. It was called the analysis model and the design model. Yeah. And they should be different. And that this was a, a positive thing because, because the analysis model, and I see the logic of it. At the time, I just bought it because, you know, when you're, you're just learning when you're starting out and you, so the analysis model would be optimized for the way the business people think. And then the design model would be optimized for the software that we were going to write. And I find that that doesn't work very well. If you create two different models, then you have this, uh, just this constant confusion. Uh, now, it's funny because I also uh, advocate, and this is a big part of domain-driven design as well, that we should not have just one model in a complex system. We should have many very distinct models separated into bounded contexts with translation in between. And so why am I so okay with that translation and that distinction, but I'm not okay with this one? The reason is because the level of collaboration that I expect, the level of, of one team working on one system, one solution and you know even understanding the problem together this creative collaboration that i want to bring about doesn't happen if you don't have a common language whereas the bounded contexts are to separate different efforts at different solutions uh so you know it's still great to have cooperative relationships and so on but but we're saying yeah we're going to really work closely with these people. If we're going to work that closely with some business people, we need to speak their language. And what mm -hmm. used to happen was certain people on a team would get good at talking to the business people. I was usually one of those people. I would learn enough to have intelligent conversations with the business people. Then I would go over and talk to my colleagues, and I knew their language too. And I could map between the two better than most maybe but it still didn't work very well and what would tend to happen is that as i went back and forth in these conversations i would start to and this was just something that kind of happened but i would start to draw the two languages together i would say you know we we call this something and they'd say well the reason that doesn't make sense the reason we call it this is because this is what we do I can remember more than one occasion where uh, where we would get to that point and they would explain why the language was different, perhaps, and that would lead me to this, aha, no wonder we've had so many edge cases. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the just the ridiculous number of edge cases that we get sometimes 
often. That, that, that's missing some concept in the in the problem domain and, and the distinction between different parts yeah. of that. Or a misaligned right. concept, right? Yeah. You just uh, you just have a, a concept that's similar to, but not the, quite the same as mm -hmm. the concept they're using. Uh, most of the domains that I've worked in have, not all though, but most are sort of where the domain itself is pretty abstract. So like finance, I did a lot of financial work when I was starting out. In finance, the whole thing's made up to begin with. So in one way, you have a completely abstract domain, and then you map it to a completely abstract software solution, you know? And so then you really are thinking in terms of how do these abstractions fit with those abstractions? And the same is true in, this, in other businesses, um, but sometimes there's a physical dimension to it as well. So, you know, a lot of the examples in my book revolve around a shipping domain. And that's really fascinating because there are layers of abstraction and those businesses operate on systems of abstraction as well. But down at the bottom of all that is some physical reality. And it pokes through sometimes and places constraints on the abstractions that you can use. Uh, so all of this is why you need to align these, you need to align the model. And in order to do that, you need to align the language, uh, you know, because it's probably not theoretically, mathematically necessary, but it, we uh, humans can't, I don't think, do it without, you know, aligning language. That's, 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 it's interesting. Uh, your, your, your comments about finances, I, I found, um, slightly amusing because because i had a friend when, when when we worked at lmax one of the guys um andy stewart who worked there was absolutely brilliant at just explaining things and he used to bring all finance down to cans of selling cans of soup basically so so you could describe he used to describe complex derivatives and trading complex derivatives by in terms of selling cans of soup and all of this sort of stuff so that everybody understood it which which i thought i thought was brilliant <laughs> Is actually <clears throat> yeah yeah i mean i i really do i think i enjoy finance because uh it it is one of those sort of infinitely complex domains you know and because so much of it is artificial and it is true that there is a level at which we're distributing the soup cans you know yeah deciding how many soup cans do you get and how yeah. many soup cans do i get and that is there, but um, but there's so many layers and that part is so arbitrarily decided in the first place. I think it's fair to say that it is a mostly, I don't know, synthetic domain, you know, that it's evolved over, you know, millennia, but it's still a creation of human minds. Sure, I, I, I guess I, guess I, I was just, uh, absolutely we we were layering a model that worked for us to help it, help everybody to understand what it was that we were doing and 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 to have more intuitive understanding i i do that with physics I'm, my hobby as you know is is i'm interested in physics and so on and and so i you know stuff that i don't understand properly i i, I kind of imagine the models yeah <laughs> and you put some some uh, potatoes in there those are the the protons <laughs> 
you you make everything a metaphor about soup (laughs) i shall try that from now on (laughs) i think i think one of the things you know we've been talking so far about about the kind of you know the 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 business focus of domain driven design and and i think that's important but I, i think there's another aspect that to me it seems it's still relevant. I, I, I'm an old school OO programmer. That's that's where I kind of cut my teeth. And and one of the light bulb moments that I had with, with object, you know, when I first learned about object orientation, was that I was kind of modelling something um, when I was when I was building the software. I, you know, the, the the links between the pieces was almost as important as the logic in the pieces. Very often, and and the you know the interactions between them. And so it seems to me that, that that people often seem to miss what to me seems obvious, that domain-driven design is equally applicable to more technical code that we write. It's just that the domain's different. You know, if you're building a list, there's a list of domain. There's something about the behavior of lists that's part of the problem domain. Yeah, I would say, like, you know, to broaden out a little more than that, um... And I know that you were involved in all this uh, high-speed messaging and, and uh, yeah. infrastructure things. And that's a domain. It even has some physical constraints. Like, it's a domain where the way the machine actually works sometimes matters. So, you like, you could imagine a beautiful, elegant abstraction of a message, and then you would say, but... That's not how machines work. That would yes. be extremely inefficient if you've implemented it that way. But so, yeah, the domain, that's why I call it domain-driven design and not business-driven design or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so what you're referring to, we, we referred to as mechanical sympathy, understanding enough yeah. about how, how the hardware nice. works to, 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 to put the, our designs into the context and take advantage of the hardware. Yeah, and when you're pushing the limits of what the hardware can do, which was what you were doing. Yeah. Um, what was the name of the project uh, that you were doing that on? So, so the company was called Elmax. The, uh, uh, the that that we built the software for. We were building what turned out to be one of the world's fast, highest performance financial exchanges. It was it was yeah. a huge amount of fun. <laughs> it does. It always sounded like tremendous fun to me. Yeah. I thought, you know, although I am not a fundamentally not a kind of down in the bits guy, not a technical frameworks guy, but on a project like that, I think I could actually get into something like that because to make something like that work, you need a you need a model, and you need, yes, uh, and then you hammer that model understanding the constraints that you're working under which are severe because you know the mechanical sympathy thing this mechanical sympathy thing just doesn't really matter if what you're doing is tracking a hundred thousand shipping containers that each take weeks to be transported from one place to another and each of which has maybe a few thousand events and then we're in a realm where modern modern hardware can handle it so easily that within reason, uh, there are things I could do that would be so stupid that it would be non-performant, but within reason, I should be okay. Yeah. Uh, 
and I not everything I've worked on is like that. There are situations where I get into monstrous, uh, you know, performance problems, and that's one thing I picked up from this mechanical sympathy thing. I mean, I think uh, it had been there in the work I was doing, but I realized that sometimes it can be a wonderful clue that the model you're using. So let's say you, you're doing something that doesn't seem intuitively like it should be all that slow, but it is slow. Yeah. And you think, why is my intuition about this so wrong? Well, one likely thing is that the mechanical sympathy is the line. You, you're doing things in a way that's very unnatural to the mechanical device that you're using. But also what I've found is that more often than not, if you find a model that um, resolves that, it's usually a better model of the domain too. Yeah, ab absolutely. One one of the facets that I think was that, that, that in some ways I, I enjoyed most and was most proud of of the system that we built at Telmax was that it was intensely a do domain driven design solution. So 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 what what we ended up doing in large part was building infrastructure that was blisteringly high performance and used all of the techniques of mechanical sympathy to be able to focus on those with very strong separation concerns from the the domain logic of the system so the actual bits of the software that were focused on the trading algorithms and uh, and so on you know executing stops and all of those kinds of things in our exchange were kind of pure domain logic that they were they were almost that simple so so our services were single threaded and rich the, the, the state of the system was represented by the in-memory state of these very high-performance services, but we just communicated with them so blisteringly fast, and they operated quickly enough that they were their performance was almost negligible in, in, the, in the measurement of the system because everything else was so fast. And you could just express what that yeah. logic was. Yes, yeah, so 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 a, a a trade comes flying into the execution engine and goes into a mark a stateful marketplace and does it match or not and you 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 put a record out to say whether it matches or not uh, yeah. and you, that was and so by the way I mean one of the principles in domain driven design not as central as what I was talking about earlier but it, this is an illustration of how the the principles are a lot broader than the examples in the book. The examples yeah. were rooted in 2003 or so. But um, so what you just described to me reminds me of the layered architecture. And so the, the layered architecture in the book is described with the example that, well, we have, you know, the distinction between the database layer, the domain layer, the application layer, but, here you've you've got a completely different set of layers, but the point of it is that you have a way of isolating this piece of domain logic in yes. where it can do its job, you know. So, like, uh, if you were to do what what people conventionally did back in the nineties and two thousands, and probably a lot of people still do where these business activities are anchored tightly into a database transaction. 
Yeah. So there's no real separation between the domain layer and the database. Um, there's a places a lot of constraints on the kind of logic that you can create. That you know the kind of model you can use, how performant it will be. Uh, so uh, that was the example that was used in the book. But here you have a completely different architecture. Yes. Completely different concerns, but one of the features it has is that you can isolate a little piece of domain logic from all the mystery, and yet it can it can do its job in a really clear, distilled way and in a high performance way. Yes, and 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 if we take that broader view of domain, so we can talk about the communications domain in our system, and you know the, the persistence domain as being separate concerns of our system that we, as well as the the, the business logic, the, the the logic of trading, and each of those is distinct enough and collaborative enough with its near neighbours that that it's high performance, but also has a great separation of concerns so that it's focused on one part of the problem, which I, I think makes it easier to understand the problems, easier to write the code, easier to test the code, and you end up with these blisteringly high performance results, I think, as, as a result of those better kinds of design, what I think of as, anyway. Yeah, and this, this was kind of such a wonderful eye-opener for me, probably a lot of people, when you guys started talking about this publicly. And really said loud and clear that the path to this super high performance isn't about going low level in the programming. It's not about doing all this stuff in assembly language and whatever, uh, which was kind of like people said, you know, if you need to go fast, you need to let go of the high level language, let go of all the abstractions and so on. You guys were saying, Find the right abstractions. Find the abstractions yeah. that align well with the what the machine, how the machine works, and what yes. you're trying to do. The mechanical sympathy, and I, that was a big aha moment for me. And I realized, oh, yeah, domain-driven design now can move in. My style of development can move into territory where high performance is necessary. We don't have to stick to the, you know, slow stuff. Yeah, and I, 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 I think you've said some things about about the you know the the synergy between architectures like event-based systems and and so on with with, with domain-driven designers' approach. I, I think it's broader than that, but but I think you're right. What we're seeing is that this is a generally applicable approach. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and I mean, like you know, I said, okay, the the shipping domain where you have 100,000 containers to track and they do a thousand things in their lifetime over a period of weeks. And that's low volume, and of course it is. And yet, even with that, you could create performance problems. Suppose that you had to call up, you know, a thousand records uh, from a database and you, you do it one at a time. Like, yeah. suppose that you wrote some object-oriented code and it calls this thing. And every time it goes through this loop, it goes and gets the data that it needs. And that happens to be in a database. And that might be on the other end of a wire for all I know, because it's also abstracted away. And so even calling up, you know, a thousand containers to do some kind of inventory or something um, could be could be uh, disastrously slow. Uh, 
you have to think about these things and and then yeah. choose a model so then you could say all right well let's have caching you know let's yeah. just cache all the containers and but you don't need to do that first what you need to do first is you need to think about well what is it i'm trying to do in terms of the domain that involves a thousand containers and maybe we need a name for this group of yes. containers like what are these thousand containers they're not just thousand randomly chosen containers you know there are something or other and if i know that much i could do a single database query to get the something or other and yeah it's, it's it's identifying and drawing those lines of abstraction that allow us to have those those higher level conversations between the pieces yeah and so it's no longer list of containers that now takes a thousand database hits but instead it's a single whatever warehouse inventory or something yeah which which gets me which gets me to i think if you'll forgive me praising you too much but probably the most brilliant part of the domain driven design book is kind of the strategic design patterns I, I, I think there's, there's some there's some real genius, a real insight in there. The idea of bounded context, it was so clear to me when I read about it, and yet I hadn't thought of it before in that way. It was it was just it was just fantastic. You you make me blush a little, but I I am kind of proud of ubiquitous language. I think of all the things in the book, it's it's kind of fundamental. I think it's one that applies. Yeah. I really, it's hard to think of a situation where that one doesn't apply. And I, I think a lot of people have not quite gotten it. I think that people conflate that with what I would call a subdomain, like carving the a big complex stuff, domain up into, uh, you know, like, so if we're talking about shipping, well, we could talk about booking shipping and we could talk about the logistics of loading uh, and all those separate domains. And yeah. the reason this is so confusing is because it does correlate with that, because we tend to apply it as a tool for managing, keeping those things separate. But it's more fundamental. I, I think you have to have bounded context if you want to have any kind of rigor at all. It's basically all it says is, uh, you need, if you want to define a term clearly, if you want a language with, without too much ambiguity, you need a boundary within which you can, you can say, this is the context within which I'm using this terminology. And therefore, I can define it. You know, you can't define a word without a context. Yeah. And so I stuck the word bounded on there because... Unlike normal English, normal conversation, where we're implying the context as we go along, you know, I'm constantly updating. As I listen to you, I figure out as you say words, and I know there are many meanings to almost every word you say, and yet I know which one you mean because I have a context in my that I keep updating based on our conversation. That's great. But you can't write a software system that way. Yeah. Uh, or 
you know, you, you need to be able to say, well, here's a subsystem that we're building, an actual piece of software that we're building. Within this limit here, this is what these words mean. And that yeah. boundary, we, we, build, we make these things all the time, but we didn't have a good name for them. So I'll, I'll take a little credit for the name. I, I, I think that one of the things that we're kind of talking about implicitly is going back to where we started talking about the importance of design is that, you know, this idea of that there are there are places in the structure of the software that we create that are somehow more important than other places. And those are the joins between the pieces, the, 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 the those boundaries between the different bounded contexts or you know, interfaces between services or components of the system and worrying a little bit more carefully about those places seems like a good strategy to me. Absolutely. I mean, those places are important in part because they're so tricky. And, yeah. you know, there's all sorts of ways to address that trickiness, starting with being really clear about the fact that they're there. You know, that we have this scene between two things. So just being more explicit about what's going on really helps. Another thing is, if you've got something really tricky, you realize, I mean, I've seen situations where there was a really important piece of logic where that was handled in the interaction of two systems. So that yeah. the systems integration effectively was doing business logic, doing high level business logic. I mean, I think there's often an, a little bit of business logic mixed in, but I'm talking about something non-trivial and, and important. And one of the solutions was to move that business logic either into one of those or into a third context where yeah. we could really make it explicit and coherent and then have more but simpler and cleaner integrations, you know, so that you have kind of, I mean, what you really would like to have is that these tricky inter, um, the tricky communication between bounded contexts is in concepts that are sort of easy to translate, easy to coordinate around. You don't know. I, I, I know. <clears throat> I know, I know that kind of, I, I think that the book was written with, with, with kind of the assumption of object-oriented development as an approach. I know that you have also done a fair amount of functional programming from our conversations um, together before. Do you think, I've heard people say things like domain-driven design is an object-oriented technique, and it seems like more than that to me. What's your view? Yeah, I do not think domain-driven design is limited to objects at all. I think, though, that I will acknowledge that the examples in the book are highly object-oriented. So when people read the book, they need to factor that in, right? That the examples are drawn from the typical, you know, software architecture and languages of the early 2000s which was a period of object-oriented hegemony. I hope we never see a single paradigm dominate like that again. Even in my book, I talk about other paradigms. I talk yeah. about them somewhat speculatively. 
but um and i i think that i was wedging some functional concepts into the object oriented design as well here and there yeah uh it totally translates but what you have to do is not worry about like what's an object and a method and overly literally map things over but you think is this whatever programming language i'm working in can it express abstractions and what are those abstractions like those kind of abstractions will will definitely influence the kind of model the kind of domain model we come up with uh, it's kind of like mechanical sympathy in the sense that you can't completely ignore the machine that your software is running on if you want it to perform very fast. Well, you can't completely ignore the nature of the programming language that this is going to be implemented in when you're modeling the domain. So uh, I'll give an example of um, when I... So, for a while, I was really into Clojure, which is a dialect of Lisp, for those who might not know. And Lisp, as the name implies, is all about lists and uh, everything's a list. And so if you really want a nice, elegant domain model that uh, works well in Clojure or another Lisp, you kind of want to look for the lists, the yeah. sequences. And so I was working on this uh, email analysis application. I'm sure that if I had been writing it in Java or Smalltalk or something, I would have been zeroing in on certain entities and methods and all that stuff. But uh, instead, I was realizing, well, you know, first of all, the sequence of messages fits really naturally into the basic paradigm of Lisp. And then also, we're going to have transformations of this list, and each one of those is going to have to have a name and it's going to have to mean something. And so you start to develop a domain model that's all about like lists that have names and transformations of lists into other lists that also the transformations have names and it becomes just as conceptual and just as uh, domain model-y as an object-oriented one. What I do see a lot of times is that people start to bend these languages into OO languages while, while constantly dissing OO. They will yeah. OO things, but they'll say, oh, this isn't an object, it's a record. And that's not a <laughs> method, that's a whatever they call the thing that uh, operates on the fields in the record and yet allows you to ignore the uh, content, uh, the, the structure of the record at the same time, you know, but not a method. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I still like OO and I really like functional too. It's not a... Anyway, I, I'm rambling a bit, but absolutely, DDD is not about objects as such. It's just that the that the world was dominated by OO when I wrote my book. If I, yeah. uh, it, it, I wouldn't have 
been thinking about it anyway, because the world was, oh, but even if I had, if I had written my examples in a list, nobody would have been able to make heads or tails. <laughs> nobody would have bought the book. <laughs> if I had written something in 2015, I could have written examples in closure. And, uh, you know, a significant population would have been ready for that. Yeah. But um, also, uh, I'll give oh, a little more credit than that. I think that the philosophy of collaborating with your domain expert colleagues, uh, evolving a model that is aligned closely with a language, that whole thing emerged, I believe emerged in the small talk community. That's certainly where I picked it up, where it was just sort of the, the norm or kind of the, the way we do things in that community, highly iterative, highly collaborative, the idea that the code should represent a model of the domain was not a given in those days and was in the small talk community. Uh, now, uh, the kinds of models that people tended to use, I they were, I think, much too sort of literal minded. To yeah, I, 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 I guess there's a there's sort of philosophical link in that you know the root the roots of object orientation came from simulation really, mm -hmm. and 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 you could think of one way of thinking about domain driven design is a, is kind of a simulation of the problem in software. Some are. Right. I mean, like there yeah. is an aspect of simulation in some domains, but in others, um, the simulation is, I think it's more, it's fair to say it's inspired by that. And then you, there are different kinds of models, some of which are very simulation oriented and which some of which are not so much. Sure. So, 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 so let's let's move on from looking back at your your book to the thing that triggered our conversation. Your email to me about your interest in um, AI and LLMs uh, and programming. So, 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 where do you think we are now with the use of LLMs, and where do you think we're going? Well, I mean, where we are now, I think, is definitely the thing that always. The only comparison I can come up with is like the the late nineties, you know, with regards to the uh, internet and the World Wide Web, when that was a new thing. And if you look at a website from nineteen ninety six or ninety seven, or when did the web actually start as such? Um, Earlier than that, so I, I think I, I I think I I had my first web. I downloaded my first web browser in about 93, 94. Yeah, you were way ahead. And I pick years like 96, 97, because I don't think we're in the 93 stage where that would be like a couple of years ago with LMs where the people in the inside of the yeah. world created these things. To them, these have been around for a few years and they've been using them. I think that the... Um, I think some of the uh, AI people were surprised by the reaction that ChatGPT got, but it, it was the first time that most people had had a chance to really see one of these things. 
I remember uh, not uh, maybe a couple of years ago, Microsoft put a fairly smart bot up, but they had made the mistake of making it like learn in real time. And so naturally everyone teach it, taught it to be racist and so on. And yeah. so they took it down and then everyone was afraid. This is my theory, my unsupported theory about why we didn't see much of what was going on. And then all of a sudden, ChatGPT, you know, is revealed and it's like, wow, the average consumer can go and fiddle with this thing and it can do amazing things. Or a person like me who's seen a lot of software and, and I'm just like, wow, this is the first time I've seen a thing called AI that feels to me like it deserves that name, like it acts like it has some actual intelligence. Yeah. So I think in that sense, and now we have all of these, we've got the flowering of a lot of people having access to it. That's like after the World Wide Web and the internet became public and people started getting access. So that's 96, 97 at the earliest. And I think that's where we're at. And if you said in 1997, well, what's where is this whole web thing taking us? You could have speculated. You would have gotten some broad brush things right. Yeah. I think I would have predicted that it was going to be in everything. And I would have been right. Um, I think I might have predicted that in the future, I'd have video chats with people in England uh, and it would be carried by the internet. I, I don't know if I predicted that or not, but it sounds plausible. Um, but, you know, there's a lot that we wouldn't have, I wouldn't have predicted. So obviously there'd be a lot of things. Anyway, the transformative nature of it, but also the early phase we're in. Uh, so when bringing it more grounded, I was developing software, multiple projects in the late 90s and early 2000s at a time when people were co coping with a very specific problem, which was you take this platform, which was designed for documents and hypertext. Hypertext, no one used that word anymore, by the way, although we all use hypertext all the time, every day, but we don't use the word anymore. Isn't that funny? But I digress. It, the, the World Wide Web was designed for interconnected documents. But what people wanted to use it for was applications. People wanted to be able to put, uh, you know, a, a flight booking app on the web. Well, just putting up like a form that you could fill in a few data fields and submit that, and that would be stored in a database. That was a non-trivial activity. Yeah, uh, it sounds funny even to say that now because you know it's just so extremely easy now. Uh, but through the late nineties, uh, I was on a series of projects where we were doing things like that. And um, before then, I had always been on. Well, I was always on enterprise software. Not uh, anyway. I was on a lot of projects. Remember, before that came what we called the fat server, where a computer, uh, you know, like a PC with fairly hefty computing power would do most of the actual logic work 
the persistence of data would be on a server. So the data connection was really about uh, taking persistent data or coordinating between computers. So the client devices were just kind of I.O. Yes. And now, the, right. I mean, in a web page, the, the web, the, the web page is just, um, you know, the UI part and maybe the application part. So anyway, uh, I don't want to go into a lot of, like a lot of what we did, but I will say this, that it was very hard to make a practical application on the web in the late 90s. And people created frameworks for doing this. And those frameworks didn't always make it better. Those frameworks were clunky early concepts and sometimes they made things worse. There was a period in the, around the end of the 90s where there was the rise of these uh, application servers and web servers that were like a nightmare of, for me. Uh, and, and, and that's where you think we are with, with AI now. We're, we're at that very ex early adopter experimental stage kind of in terms of, in terms of development tool. I think we are. So as a, you know, in and of itself, I use ChatGPT all the time now. And I know you use it some because you made a video about it. I did, yeah. <laughs> that was the video that I commented on that, that got this whole conversation started. And um, so there's some level of, of usefulness that it has now. But as I, I'd characterize that as kind of smart stack overflow in my IDE would <laughs> well that's the application that you and I are using it for that's perhaps the most important one to us at this stage yeah that and by start, smart stack overflow I know exactly what you mean because a change happened in the way I did software and a lot of people I don't know when maybe 15 years ago whereas before that if I ran into some problem I don't quite know how to write this in my program I would maybe look in a book about the programming language or yeah. talk to another human that I know that knows that language very well <laughs> but that's not the book you'd go to if you were trying to figure out like how does um you know how do I uh do this other version of a of a loop where I can have a function in it that's like locally defined or something and a you know so then came Stack Overflow or the other you know online discussions and you and good search and you search and you find some discussion people have had or you participate in one if you just happened in the unlikely event you're the first one to ask that question. Mm -hmm. And there it is. And you copy, paste, and modify a little bit. And the way we coded changed a lot. Yeah. But now I don't go to that anymore. I go to ChatGPT or the Copilot or something. OK, so this is a use we have of it now. But there's another thing, which is building applications with AI components in them. And this, I think, is going to be a very big thing in the coming decade. Uh, 
And I think we're at such an early stage that the early attempts are going to be, in hindsight, very clumsy. Uh, and then we'll get experience and we'll build better and better things. It's possible that we'll go down some paths, some blind alleys as far as we went with the application servers. By the way, I mean, I, I diss the application servers. I know the people who were, I even know some of the people who built those things that are involved in it. They're good, smart people, but the, the, the application servers were not a good technology. And the reason I pick on that one is because they became so dominant for a while that corporations would adopt them as a standard and you had to use them in the enterprise systems that you were building. And they were so totally an obstacle to getting things done. Uh, they, there came a point where I just said, I don't think it's possible to do domain-driven design on an app server. Mm -hmm. uh, like there was this thing called Unity Java Beans, which I hope that most of our viewers have never seen or even heard of an Unity Java Bean, <laughs> except as a cautionary tale. But I can see why people invented them. I see that their intentions, you know, but it just was a it was a problem, and and so I wouldn't be surprised if we go down paths like that again. Uh, so we'll have all kinds of frameworks for dealing with LLMs. Some of them will be really helpful, and some of them will be obstacles, and uh, we'll stumble around for ten or fifteen years, and then people will. Will actually know what they're doing. Yeah. And this presumes, by the way, that we don't have any more really big breakthroughs in the next decade, right? Like, I'm kind of there describing a world in which these language models of um, varying sizes, you know, we, we mentioned the LLMs like. ChatGPT, but one of the things that really fascinates me right now is uh, like using smaller language models fine-tuned for specific applications. I can just picture a whole bunch of situations where we could have used such a thing in some of the enterprise. Do, do you have any examples? See, it's so hard because let, let me let me try it another way around so, so, so one of the places where i think i've seen some of that happening is by virtue of doing this um I, I i play with video editing software sometimes and the video editing software that i use has some really quite remarkable targeted ai features so for example there's a a, a noise filter that basically you can just record something like this in a noisy background and you can apply this noise filter and it'll remove all the background noise but leave your voice mm -hmm. intact and clear even when the, the background noise is quite loud and intrusive and it's really hard to imagine how you do that any other way and and similarly there are, there are video enhancements so so those very targeted kinds of tools that allow you to do things in a narrow context yeah i, I see creeping in through that kind of route absolutely the thing that we haven't seen yet is people applying this to the kind of you know domain problems that I typically worked on it. <clears throat> I'm sure it's starting though. I just 
I haven't been involved in such projects. If someone's listening who has a project <laughs> like that, <laughs> then uh, I'm I'm actually interested. But the thing is that, uh, and these early attempts are bound to be a bit clumsy, you know. And we'll have to learn to deal with things like the unpredictability of the model results uh, and ways to reduce that or ways to make that be okay. I can just, it's going to be a very interesting decade, I think. And, but that does assume that there isn't, that there aren't breakthroughs that happen that transform everything. Um, like, there are some people who go around talking about how, well, in a few years, we're going to have a superhuman intelligence that will just change it, literally everything about our lives. I kind of don't think that's going to happen, but I mean, my opinion about that has very little to do with whether it happens or not. I think the best thing for me and people like me is to say, well, we can't know what's going to happen, but we do know that we have these tools now. We actually have them. These are not like wild-eyed speculations about the future of AI I'm talking about. I'm saying yeah. if you take the tools that are out there on Hugging Face right now, if we didn't mm -hmm. get anything better than that for the next 10 years, which seems extremely unlikely, but even if you didn't get anything better than that, we could have 10 revolutionary years in which we learn to apply those things in literally every you know every nook and cranny yeah. um, but we will have new stuff of course yeah does so so you've already said that you don't think to put word, words slightly into your mouth you've already said that you don't think that the agi thing's going to happen the singularity is going to happen and it take over the world but does it does this make you nervous at all because even with the level of technology that we have i think there are kind of cultural challenges yeah. that we're going to face with the easy ability to recreate people and things and so on yeah i think we should be worrying about that part right i think the ability to do a fake version of dave farley that's a real problem that we actually have already. You know, well, it's going to get worse in the next few years. And society needs to deal with that somehow. Worrying about the singularity, I don't think, helps with that. I think it distracts from the actual problems that we are actually going to face. Uh, will we have, I think, so I think uh, singularity, I would assess as very unlikely in the next short time but remember my opinion about this is has very little to do with whether it happens or not but i don't think it's very likely you weren't sure with the predictor video phones different <laughs> category than the singularity by the way <laughs> you could easily have agi and not have a singularity yeah um, after all we already have lots of gis and we don't have a singularity i mean you're a gi and i'm a gi <laughs> so if you stick an A before it, how does that automatically lead to, it does though. So another thing I'd worry about in addition to the fake uh, Dave Farley's is the disruption to the labor market. I yeah. think that we're going to see a lot of jobs go away and new jobs created, of course, as, uh, but um, 
those will be very different jobs. They're not jobs that are available to the people who are losing their jobs. That's the thing, you know, when people say, well, it's creative destruction and, you know, we'll lose millions of jobs, but we'll create even more millions of jobs. But the trouble is that the people who lost those millions of jobs can't take the new millions of jobs, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's going to be lots of prompt engineering jobs, maybe, but you know, the person who worked at a call center who now doesn't work at a call center isn't going to be able to be a prompt engineer. Yeah. Uh, unless it's like you know, the 90s when uh, if you could write a line of PHP that could compile, you could get a job as a web developer. <laughs> I am not exaggerating. <clears throat> that was kind of a disaster for the field as well, I would say. Yeah. So, 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 do, so, how how do you see the impact on professional software developers? Do, do, a tool that's going to use that that we're going to that we're going to use and will change a little bit the way in which we do what we do, or um, eliminating software development altogether? Where are you on that kind of spectrum? Well. I'm in the middle of that spectrum, I suppose, because I think uh, it won't eliminate software development as a profession. Um, if they really do create AGI, then I suppose that you could have an AGI do your job or my job. Depending on how you define that, if you have a truly human capable thing, then by definition, it can do things, it can replace a human, any human, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think more likely that the higher level software people are going to have work for, you know, I'm looking 10 years out. I don't know what's gonna happen 30 years from now. Uh, I, I probably won't be alive in 30 years, and uh, no one can predict that far in the future. But 10 years is a time horizon where, even though our prediction ability is poor, we have to do our best anyway, because we have to plan and, and uh, we have to make a choice about what we're going to do, right? So mm -hmm. when I say I think there's not going to be AGI, I don't really mean I've done some kind of scientific analysis and concluded that that's not what's going to happen. Although I do think from my general semi-layman's viewpoint, I don't think that's imminent. I don't think it's as straightforward as like, just make the LLM even bigger. You know, mm -hmm. when an LLM behaves at moments, you have this eerie sense that it's intelligent. And it makes me think that that probably reflects some of how our minds work, maybe more than we like to think, that we have generators in our minds like that. But there are other components, I think. I think it's missing pieces. And I think that some of those pieces will start to come along and we'll get more capable things. And maybe someday they'll have something you could truly call an AGI. I'll bet by that time, they have better words for it than AGI. Yeah. They'll say, oh, yeah, I mean, early 21st century people had such a naive view of all this. But what we have now is these LLMs, and they're getting better, but also getting smaller. Like, 
you know, I don't think the whole future is GPT-5. I think that yeah. the future will be a range. It's like, you know, look what insects can do with insect-sized brains, right? Mm -hmm. If we had the insect-level AI, think of the things we could do with that. Yeah, and we're already getting some of that with hardware and software on our phones. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, our phones, like, these are going to seem awfully clunky, I think, in just a couple of years. And yeah. I mean, like, two, maybe one year, because yeah. the idea that I have to navigate to an app to do this and that, and I can't just tell my phone what I want. Like, yeah. GPT understands enough of what I want, what I mean, that I, I could just picture just talking to my phone and telling it what I want. Or this stupid, you know, um, Amazon Echo that yeah. I use to turn the lights on and off and find out what the weather is. Well, if that thing weren't so dumb, uh, you know, and I think that will happen, right? But yeah. But those are the things where you just say, yeah, you just take chat GPT and you integrate it into some stuff. But now let's think about like, what about people like us who work on systems that have thousands of pieces? And yeah, there's the aspect of the tools we use to do that work. Those, we already have at least a couple new tools to do that work with. We've got, you know, I, um, but I, I think the part that excites me the most is the components that we could create to incorporate into those systems. That could be mm -hmm. all different levels of language models and other kinds of AIs too. But for me, the language models are the most interesting thing. I mean, after yeah. all, right, DDD, I was saying, you know, it's about ubiquitous language. How cool mm -hmm. is it then that when we finally get AI that's worthy of that name, you know, and it turns out to be a language model. I, I yeah. think that's just uh, good luck. I don't, I'm not uh, saying there's anything really profound there, but I'm not saying there's not. But anyway, so, but you asked me about like, how will it change our work, the tools that we yeah. use? Will it make us obsolete? Uh, will it just be a handy alternative to, uh, to stack overflow uh, or, you know, and I said somewhere in between those two things in ways that are probably hard for me to foresee, but let me tell you like how it's been going for me lately. Cause I do think it's moved into territory. That's more than the, for me, it's already moved into territory. That's more than the improved stack overflow. Yeah. So the thing I was, that I've been trying to learn is fine tuning. So take a language model, maybe a smaller language model that has quite generic training. So it already knows language, you know, it knows English and so on, but, and then train it to do something specific, something that you might need a much higher level language model to do if you just throw a prompt at it. But, you know, it's, it's just inefficient to do everything that way. So I've been learning to do this and there's a whole lot of learning, right? There's just so much. And for me to even just do a little prototype, do a little experiment. And um, so I'm not very good in Python, 
I could bone up on Python, but then there's a hundred, uh, you know, frameworks, including the ones specifically for training these AIs. Now, mm -hmm. I could spend months, you know, grindingly learning Python, learning the various frameworks involved. But what I'm finding is <coughs> I can go to ChatGPT and a few other AI tools, and I can get more than just advice about this specific thing or whatever i can say okay now i'm trying to write a script in python that uses this framework to do this thing my uh, data frame has this kind of um, fields in it and blah, blah 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 and it will spew out a script with explanatory text i take the script I try it out. Now, I'm not just letting it do the job, but I am mostly letting it do the job because I go back and I don't even try to really write the scripts by hand anymore. But what I'm finding is that my learning is much faster because I'm not constantly getting stopped by trivia. The trivia is being handled by a thing that is much more than a improved version of Stack Overflow. It's more like having a pair programmer, except it's not really like having a pair programmer either. Because a pair programmer, like a human one, would the interaction would be very different. Um, it's a new thing. And it's and I but I use this tool. I'm not collaborating with a human pair programmer. Right? I'm using a tool that uh, can generate code in a language that I'm not that familiar with, but I'm getting familiar with it faster than I would have if I had to stumble my way. Yeah. And I'm able to call the right operations in a framework that I've never used before that I would have wasted a whole day just being learning to do a trivial thing, a thing that I conceptually understood already. So I'm not learning yeah. anything important, but I'm just yeah. stumbling for a day on trivialities. So. It speeds me through the most boring, non-important learning stuff and lets me go much faster on the important learning and the important getting able to actually do things. So that in a couple of weeks, I covered ground that I think would have taken me months in the past. Yeah, I, 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 I confess that I've, I've largely only played with it so far. But I think I've seen hints of that without without really seeing it in the same way that you've described. I mean, have you gone into an area that you didn't already know yet? Because that's yeah, where it really it, it, it didn't work out for me very well when I did that because the, the, it, it it didn't know anything about the area that I was looking at oh, either. Okay. <laughs> well, I was in an area that you wouldn't be surprised that it knows a lot, which is yeah. how do you train AI models? And uh, this, it turns out, ChatGPT knows quite a lot about. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I think it's interesting. I, I, as I say, I, I think I've seen glimmers of that so far, but I need to do some more, 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 more work to, to, to find those things. I think, but I must that's say, interesting. Yeah, I mean, so still, as I say, I mean, this is very exciting because I, I'm not sure. Like, would I have gotten, 
I, I suppose what I would have had to do in the past is simply say, all right, I need to find a project to sign up to. And I do, I, I do need a project to sign up to, but just to get through, and there's a kind of a chicken and egg because you want to go to a project and say, all right, well, I already know basics. Like I, I know enough to be somewhat useful. Like maybe I would have been able to pull it off by just saying, well, you know, I'm a famous guy. I wrote a book 20 years ago and people think I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I could be good at this completely new thing if you give me months to come up to speed. I could have done that maybe, but most people can't do that. I, I don't want to do that anyway. I want to, you know, learn some basics and also experiment with my own ideas as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I do yeah. so many side projects. I always have done side projects. Mm -hmm. And my side projects now involve training LLMs and such. Well, LMs anyway. And cool. And so it removed this obstacle, you know, that I'm not sure I would have gotten quite over that learning. Yeah. You know, well, I, I, I know I know the kind of hurdle you, you, that, you, that you mean is, is when you, as you say, conceptually, you understand what it is that you want to achieve and you know that these things are going to do it. You just haven't quite got the, you know, all of the plumbing right or the syntax right at that at that moment and and being able to get you through that more quickly i i would definitely value that very highly it, i was i was i was i was kind of literally looking for that in in the little project that i was trying to do i was i was trying i was i was, I was trying to do something around writing a test framework um that, that i wanted to do for, for performance testing and i thought it might be able to help me do that and, and navigate adding a plugin um appropriately but he didn't know enough about about how to do any of those that, those sorts of things which is fair enough it's reasonably esoteric stuff yeah but so you but, you ventured into an area that it just hasn't been trained on uh, yeah yeah if it's not in the training set then that thing can't help you uh yeah there is a difference with a human uh which is that a human with the training that gpt yeah. does have training kind of alongside would be able to, to 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 have some insight into how to do the, deal this with this. Yeah, problem. or truly yeah. collaborate with you as you start yeah. trying to figure it out for yourself, right? Like, uh, if another human who had the knowledge, not you know, because as you say, it's esoteric, but if they had a good base of related knowledge, yeah, the two of you would have collaborated. We've gotten that magic that happens sometimes with more than one yeah. person, you know? And, uh, but you can't do that with GPT. Maybe this imaginary uh, AGI that could come anytime, maybe you can do that kind of ex sort yeah. of extension of what it knows and, and true collaboration with another mind. Uh, I don't know, I think there's quite a few pieces missing before we have a real AG AGI. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I've just noticed the time. I think we should probably think about moving towards wrapping up. I've got a couple of things. So one of the things that we do on our Discord channel is ask Patreon members to suggest questions for the famous people that we talk to. So I've got I've got two or three questions that that, that came from our Discord channel. If you don't mind yeah. asking those, so do it. Um, 
So what software books are Eric's top favorite or favorites since Dave gave Domain Driven Design his number one in his video? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. What, what's, what's, your, what's your strongest recommend, recommendation for software books that software developers ought to read, apart from oh. yours? And apart from mine, probably. <laughs> that would be too embarrassing. <laughs> okay. So present company accepted. I'm looking behind me because my, I have a bookshelf back here. And it's so hard to, to think about stuff like that because I think that, um, I think that the books that influenced me the most were books I read so long ago that I, uh, Whereas the best books might have been more recent ones. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna duck this question for now. Okay. I, I hate to, but I think I will. Okay. It's a good question. Um, how much of your domain-driven design book do you feel has become timeless and how much was a product of the time? You've talked a little bit already about the kind yeah. of the folk, the yeah, language I mean, and the examples that you can answer, right? I, I do yeah. think uh, even relatively early on, I, I was steering people to say, you know, don't get bogged down in like the, the really long detailed examples. Like there's, I think it's chapter seven, somehow that, rings a bell but one of the chapters is entirely one work example and i think that is important because you know you, one thing i wanted to avoid was having just a floaty um you know castle of abstractions but but some of the examples are really quite old-fashioned and um are not the core concepts right like the, the fundamentals, you know, like ubiquitous language, boundary context, distilling the core domain. And uh, if you look at it broadly enough, the, you know, the importance of layered, a layered architecture that I was just talking about, those things hold up very well. The discussion of collaboration with domain experts and how these two very different kinds of experts have to kind of interact with each other. Those parts of the book, I think, hold up well. And uh, a couple of personal stories in the book about projects that I was on and how they, they evolved. I think the point that I try to drive home is how you can't know enough at the beginning to create a good model. So you have to get started fast and iterate and how that iteration happens, which is partly the collaboration. And also that it's going to be hard and, and even feel bad sometimes. I think that I tried to convey in the book, how when you're on the right track, it doesn't always feel good because you'll come to a moment, for example, tell a story in one of the chapters i think it's for some reason i think it might be chapter eight it's called breakthrough but it's a real story from my early career we were on a project that i would say was a 
pretty much a DDD project, although it was long before I had coined those words. And we were iterating and iterating, and we were so far behind schedule, and we were running into edge cases. Finally, we realized a model that would make a lot of edge cases go away, but would take a profound change in the design. And it was sickening. It was like, oh, we can't get from here to there by improving the design we have. We have the choice between patching out the clumsy system that, you know, we'll have a, always have a few edge cases or being even further behind and getting this right. But, you know, when I talk about being behind, you know, we weren't behind because we were doing nice design. <laughs> we were, uh, I want to make that clear. Anyway, point okay. that there are parts that hold up and a lot of it is around how this happens. But some of the patterns of like, uh, I still think distinguishing entities and value objects and, and events is really valuable. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was doing functional programming, where people tend to map like, okay, an entity is, uh, you know, an object that has an ID and a value is an object that doesn't have an ID. <laughs> but when you're doing functional programming, people will say things like, oh, there aren't any entities there. There's just value objects because objects are immutable. Data structures are immutable in, at least in the language browser. No, I don't agree with that. The thing about an entity is it's an identity that's that matters in the domain, a sequence of change where there's continuity. A value object doesn't care about continuity. It just is what it is. And if it changes, it didn't change. It was just yeah. place. If you're tracking, if I, if I place an order and I want to find out what the order history is, I want to look up, be looking up the same, the, the information about the same order. Exactly. Yeah. So the order is an entity, and even if you're in a functional programming language where you don't have an object that you're modifying, which, you know, I would just say is probably not a good practice, generally speaking. Anyway, even if you're in another language, uh, I wouldn't have said that in 2003, but I'd say it now. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot in there. Uh, I'm rambling now, officially rambling. <laughs> so 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 to stop your rambling and to and and to also give you back your evening, I, I will uh, let's wrap up there. It, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank thank you, Eric. As as ever, I've enjoyed talking to you a great deal. Me too. As as usual, it's been really stimulating and and. Uh, given me a lot of interesting thoughts. So thanks for inviting me, Dave. It's a pleasure. So, so let, let me just wrap up. I'll say once again, thanks to our sponsors, Equal Experts. If you've watched this far and caught both Eric and I rambling on about, about design and all of these other things, thank you for listening. These discussions are aimed at helping us all to push our discipline forward. If we've helped to change your perspective on the things that we discussed here today, please do leave the podcast a review as it will help us a lot to reach a wider audience with our show. Also, let us know on Twitter or other social media channels if you've got suggestions for guests that we really should talk to. 
Similarly, if you have any thoughts on our discussion here today, please do let us know. The best way to get in contact with us is through our Discord, which you can access via Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode today, please do consider supporting the show, either directly through Patreon or by leaving us a review.